If you've got scripture with you this morning, we're going to spend our time in Matthew chapter 13. If you want to go ahead, bookmark that uh, for when we jump in in a few minutes, that would be awesome. But stories are a part of each of our lives. We all have stories. We have been moved by stories. Some of our fondest memories may indeed include stories. You may experience an emotional reaction when you hear the words, once upon a time. Our lives, our experiences, our highs, our lows, our successes, our traumas, they all make up our story. And our stories can be incredible tools used to further the kingdom of God. Many of us believe that we must evangelize this story to win souls for Jesus. But even Jesus Himself taught using stories. The parable is probably Jesus' most popular teaching tool. A parable is defined as a practical story, often framed as a simile that illustrates spiritual truth. There are all kinds of parables found in the Gospels. Some you may have heard on a number of occasions. The prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the lost sheep. Over the next four weeks, we're going to focus on the parables of Jesus. But we're going to do so through the stories of our church family. My prayer this morning is that you experience the teaching the Lord has put on on my heart through, through Scripture, but that you also experience how Jesus may have used this teaching by hearing the stories from within our own community. Your stories matter. Jesus is powerful enough to use your story to change the lives of those people you meet every day. That's why one of the, one of the core values here at Nicholson is we believe found people find people. But before we begin, I think it's important to understand parables a little bit more. I think we've got to have some clarity. Why did Jesus use parables to teach? He didn't, why didn't He just tell those listening the point rather than telling a story? Well, actually, within the parable that we're going to look at today, Jesus answers this for us. You see, His disciples ask Him in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, why are you speaking to them in parables? Jesus answers them by saying, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you to know, but it has not been given to them. Jesus points out in this section two purposes for parables, and they're different based on the audience that's hearing the parables. First, first, Jesus was using parables to reveal truth to those who believed the mysterious. For the disciples, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven had been given to them to know by God. Secrets here may also refer to mysteries. The word secret or mystery refers to something that was hidden in the Old Testament that is now made known in the New Testament. See, it was no secret that God was going to send a Messiah to usher in a kingdom. But what was a secret was what kind of Messiah God would send and how that Messiah would conquer, not through political struggle, not through physical force, but through selfless love and sacrificial death on a cross. For those who trusted that Jesus was that king, the parables helped them see what kind of king he was and what kind of kingdom he would bring forth. The second purpose for parables is is that Jesus was concealing truth from those who were denying the obvious. Despite miracle after miracle, despite what he taught and when he taught it, the crowds and the religious leaders, they refused to believe in Jesus as the Christ. Jesus continues to answer his disciples in verse 11. 
He says, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has, for whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will be more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has been, even what he has will be taken away from him. And then in verse 13, he tells us why he is doing things this way. That is why I speak to them in parables, because looking they do not see, and hearing they do not listen or understand. And what's fascinating here, the people who would see and respond to outward miracles Jesus would perform, they refused to acknowledge the miracles that were said about him. Because the next thing Jesus tells, and he continues to explain to his disciples, he quotes from Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, when he says this, in, in, uh, in Matthew 13 and 14, when he says, Isaiah's prophecy, or sorry, 14 and 15, Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, you will listen and listen, but you never understand. You will look and look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous, for their ears, their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might not see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn back and I would heal them. So based on that, based on that, it's important to summarize how we're supposed to understand parables today. And these are some big, big ideas I want you to carry through the next four weeks. Parables have been, and they continue to be interpreted, but also misinterpreted as we go. We need to keep these three, these three things in mind when we seek to understand parables. Number one, we need to listen from the hearer's perspective. We need to put ourselves in the shoes of those that hear these parables for the first time. Number two, we need to look for the main point. Jesus always has a point. He's using a story to make that point. So we've got to find the main point. And number three, most important, we have to allow the truth to change our perception. We have to allow the main point, the big idea, the truth that Jesus is teaching to change. Today, we will look, we will listen, and we will change through the parable of the sower. Follow with me as I read Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, and verses 18 to 23. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down while the whole crowd stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it. Still other seed fell on good ground and produced fruit, some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears listen. Verse 18, so listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. And the one sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root and it is short-lived. 
when distress or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now the one sown among the thorns, this one, this is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word, who does produce fruit and yields, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty times what was sown. I grew up going to church from the time I was a toddler to somewhere around middle school. My dad grew up Pentecostal, but became a Baptist preacher. He preached for a few years at Blanket Creek Baptist south of Falmouth, and then for several years at New Zion Baptist in uh, Bracken County, Kentucky. I never liked going to church because it was boring, but my sister got baptized when she was about eight years old. I followed soon after, around six or eight, I believe. I don't doubt that I believed in Christ at the time, uh, but I'm sure I really didn't understand salvation. I think at the time, baptism was just kind of what you did as a Christian, so I did it. That's not to take anything away from my young faith, because I do fully remember believing in Jesus. I just didn't know there were any other alternatives at the time. My mom was never a believer and was never supportive of my dad's preaching, although she did go to church. I remember her writing letters to people during his sermons, not paying any attention to him whatsoever. I thought it was normal at the time, but now it's upsetting knowing how little support he actually had from her. My dad has a lot of character flaws. He was unfaithful to my mom for years. I'm not sure of the circumstances when he quit preaching, but I believe he stepped down on his own. I don't know if it was because of his cheating. When he stopped preaching, it was late elementary or early middle school for me. Like most young men, my dad was my hero, and I wanted to please him. So I continued to be a Christian, in name at least, through my freshman year in high school. Though. I still know I didn't really know what it meant. My friends I had through elementary school played sports and I didn't. So when the elementary schools were consolidated at the middle school, uh, they had buddies from the traveling team and basically they disowned me. So this led me to new friends who I'm still close with today. One of the new friendships that developed late in middle school and early in high school was a guy named David. And David was an atheist. Somewhere around sophomore year, we began debates and discussions about God. This was around the same time that my, the truth about my dad was becoming more apparent to me and the reverence was starting to wear off. David's influence and my dad's misdeeds and becoming a teenager was too much for my faith and I fell away. I'm not sure if I ever became an atheist as in a full-fledged denial of God's existence, but I certainly was at least agnostic and came to see faithful people as naive and ignorant. And faith certainly wasn't convenient to a teenager who was interested in parties and girls. It was easier to tear other people down than to try to adhere to and defend some worldview of my own. So I really just didn't have a foundation. Our high school basketball team went to state my senior year 
Betsy and I were in pet band together and traveled to all the tournament games to play. This meant lots of long bus, bus rides to sit together and talk. We started dating around that time, which was March of my senior year. Her whole family was annoyingly Christian. <laughs> I couldn't hardly get away with anything around them. And Betsy was very Christian too. If I wanted to see her, many times it would involve some church function. I would attend with her family on Sundays, and I'd sometimes go to youth group with her. I even went to a big Christian conference with her. None of the Christian mumbo-jumbo was wearing off. Not yet, anyway. We know this parable as the parable of the sower, but a better title may be the parable of the soil. You see, the soil is the key variable that's in this story. The sower and the seed, they never change. Amen? I hope that you gathered the sower is Jesus, and the seed is the message of salvation. The good news of the kingdom, that God will save and redeem sinners through Christ. However, Jesus uses the different types of soil to represent the human heart. Jesus was he was out teaching and preaching the seed, the good news of the kingdom, but many people continued to rebel against what he was saying or, or they just casually responded to the message. Sound familiar? Jesus is clear. The problem of rejection is not with the seed or the sower. The problem is with the soil. Through the parable, Jesus identifies four kinds of soil, pointing to four different heart responses for the message of salvation. First, in verse 4, Jesus shares that seed fell along the path and was devoured by birds. The soil represents the hard heart. This type of soil would hear the message of salvation, but they would reject it, allowing Satan to come and steal the good news away. In verse 5 and 6, Jesus refers to the rocky ground. This type of soil, it represents the superficial heart. This kind of heart hears the message and responds to it, but there's no root enabling it to grow and thrive. When pressure comes from, from outside to challenge their faith, this type of soil has no foundation and will fall away. In verse 7, Jesus refers to seed falling among the thorns. Here, the soil represents the divided heart. You see, this type of soil hears the Word, it hears the message, but the thorns, which, which represent the cares and the wealth of the world, they overtake the seed, leaving no room for growth. And it's important to note here, thorns do not instantly choke out the seed. This is gradual. It may feel as though the seed has taken root in your life, but as priorities become misaligned, as the world becomes seductive, the seed is choked out. And in verse 8, finally, Jesus refers to seed falling on the good ground and producing fruit. The soil represents the fruitful heart. Here the soil hears the Word, it understands it, and it bears fruit. Jesus is clear, though, that the measure of that fruit may be different for each person. But there is fruit, and that's our takeaway. Those hearts in the good ground, their fruit will be evident for the world around them to see. So as we listen to our own parable today, as you listen to your own story, ask yourself, 
What kind of heart do you have? I always love to argue. I'd frequently start arguments with Betsy about her faith. A couple I can remember were about evolution in the age of the earth. These got worse when I went to college. The arguments usually ended with me being overbearing and her shutting down, saying she didn't have the answers and she didn't care. Of course, this was frustrating for someone who wanted to debate. After a while, it became apparent that I wasn't going to talk her out of being a Christian. I really did think that I would at some point, but it never happened. Betsy knew that her identity was in Christ, and nothing was going to change that. Her strong faith had me second-guessing my own belief system. This was the catalyst for my heart change. It was around this time I began asking God to give me a sign. Yes, I know it's cliche. It seemed to me that if I was a genuine seeker but received no response from him, it would actually validate my disbelief. Only problem was I did receive a response. Around this time, uh, I remember we went to a youth group function, and there was a time of quiet prayer and reflection among the students. Uh, I prayed quietly during that time that God reach out to me in some way, that he'd help remove my disbelief. And immediately after the prayer, the youth leader, Michael Dameron, asked if he could speak with me privately. Interesting. We went into a room and he asked about my faith. He said that while we were praying, he felt God ask him to talk to me about it. I was stunned. I didn't immediately recommit my life to Christ, but it was a huge eye-opener and a big part of my journey. Another time we were at a youth conference. The conference was wrapping up and there was a big concert at the end. There must have been 8,000 people in attendance. 8,000. We weren't anywhere near the stage, probably 50 rows back. On the last song, the lead singer walked out into the audience, up the aisle, climbed the bleachers, stepped over a bunch of chairs, literally climbed over the chairs, and stood on the chair directly in front of me and finished the finale of the concert. We were all on the big screen. It was unreal. I began a period of soul-searching and reading. Campus ministry at UK was handing out free copies of Blue Like Jazz by Donald Miller. It was free, so I took one. I assumed it was stupid. I read it and after a while, or I read it after a while, and now it's one of my all-time favorite books. Such a contrast to the Christianity that I grew up with. <clears throat> so much more honest and real. I didn't know Christians could be like that. I began listening to Ravi Zacharias and reading his books, then C.S. Lewis. My mind was blown. I never knew or considered there was a legitimate intellectual basis for faith. On top of this, amazing Christian influences entered my life. Betsy's parents were a shining example. There were many others. We started going to Southland in Lexington and attending Christian Student Fellowship, which is a student ministry at UK. And the messages at both were amazing and eye-opening. 
I'm not sure where I first came across it, but Matthew 7, 7 was a key verse for me. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Well, I knocked and the door was opened. I was thinking the other day about how my life would be different if I didn't know Christ and if the Holy Spirit had not been shaping me for the last 15 years or more. I came to the realization that whether something is good or not depends on if God is involved. So maybe a better word is holy. I've had more of the sense that God is goodness and vice versa. Good is literally defined by something God did. Good cannot exist outside of God. I don't think this thought is new or profound, but it's the first time I'm really understanding it. So with this in mind, I can look at every good thing I have and every good quality I possess and really know that it's from Him. I'm careful not to confuse things that merely seem good with actual good or holy things. And I understand that there are things in my life that I view as good that He does not. I ask him to help me discern the difference when I pray. I'm still figuring out what all this means, and I'll continue to seek his truth my whole life. But I know for sure that my life is his. I'm resting securely on that foundation, and it has changed everything for me. Ultimately, there's another point to this parable. There's one more point that Jesus wants us to take away from his story. One of the ways we grow fruit is to continue to sow seed in the lives of others. Despite what we see in the world, Jesus' message is this, don't stop sowing seed. Yes, there are birds who will devour the seed. Yes, there are rocks that will not, that, that, that will not allow the seed to take root. Yes, there are thorns to choke out that seed. But all of those things are of the world. Jesus is not the author of the evil working to rip the seed from the hearts. Jesus is not the author of the pressures, the persecutions, the worries that keep people from roots. No, those are of the world, and Jesus overcame all of that. That's a really good word this morning to remember and to take as you go. But as God put this on my heart, God reminded me to tell you one thing this morning. Let anyone who has ears listen. You know, God teaches and reacts and and, and allows us to react in ways that can be very powerful, that can be very emotional, that can be very uh, soul-searching. And this morning, I'm so thankful for Rob for sharing with us his story. And we all have stories. You may be someone who has walked with Christ your entire life and you feel as distant as you have ever felt today. You may be someone who uh, has not yet begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. You've been a skeptic. You've been someone that has doubted this whole church thing and, and something brought you here this morning. That's not a coincidence. As Brandon comes, we're going to give you a chance this morning to respond to what you've heard. 
Maybe your heart needs to respond. Maybe you need prayer. Myself and and one of our elders uh, will be up here, and we welcome the opportunity to pray with you. Maybe you need to respond uh, by making a decision to confess and to repent and to be baptized and to enter into the loving and the wonderful salvation that Christ offers. Maybe you're someone today that, that simply just needs to come and share your story. We'd love to hear it. We'll be up here in the front as Brandon sings, but I'm going to ask you to worship in your way. I invite you as Brandon closes to stand if you would like, but if you need to spend time in prayer, then do that. And as we close, I'll just remind you again that uh, you are free to worship in whatever way you see fit, Um, but we will close after Brandon's finished. If we have anything that, that we've responded to and we need to share that with you, we will. But if not, uh, the elders will come and, and we'll have that uh, quick meeting. So let's pray together and uh, let's go before the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, I thank you so much for Rob. I thank you for, for his uh, desire and his graciousness to share his story today. And I thank you so much for the reminder of the stories that Jesus uses to teach, to guide, to direct to nurture, and to include. Jesus did not come, as we read today, but to take by political force or to, uh, to take uh, by physical force. Jesus came with sacrificial love for every single person in this room. Father, I, I pray for the hearts in this room that need to hear that this morning, and I pray for strength to give them the option to to respond through your leading. Father, we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.